Welcome to our Fixing Healthcare podcast show, Breaking the Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core. I'm also host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He's an oncologist, medical ethicist, and a major contributor to the Affordable Care Act legislation. On a variety of healthcare issues, he has challenged the medical establishment, and in today's episode, we plan to explore many of them. Hi, Zeke, and welcome to Season 7 of Fixing Healthcare. (laughs) It's nice to be here, and I laugh at fixing healthcare because uh, it seems like uh, a Sisyphusian task. <laughs> Absolutely, what is it? We push the rock up, and it rolls down, or we get get our livers pecked out, and we end up having them regenerate. So uh, it's a long mythology dating back, but we're continuing the process. Uh, this season, Zeke is dedicated to breaking the rules, and if you've done anything in your career on behalf of patients and the health of our nation, it has been to challenge the norms, to challenge the beliefs and to make the changes. The rules I'm talking about aren't the ones found in textbooks or learned in academic lecture halls, and they're not the legal or regulatory ones. They're the ones you and I learned in medical school and residency training by observing our senior residents and the attending physicians. Most of these rules and norms have never been spoken and none of them are written but they're all communicated effectively. We know they're a rule because we can observe nearly all doctors across the country following them. And even when the data says there are better ways to treat a patient or to move the policy of our country, we continue to follow the rules left over from the past. So let's start at the beginning. You seem to come from a family of rule breakers, including your two brothers, Ram and Ari. Where does that come from? And how are the three of you similar and different? <laughs> I thought this was about healthcare. It will um, be, but I have to start <laughs> with the foundation of breaking the rules. <laughs> so I, I would say, uh, first of all, I think you're right, Robbie. We are rule breakers. Um, uh, my my partner is always saying, you know, you think a rule is a good suggestion and not as a rule in the sense that most people think about it. I would say that uh, it comes from our parents in two ways. Um, my mother, uh, very early on, and I mean very early on, when she was a teenager, uh, was very dedicated to civil rights, well before white people and white women. Uh, were heavily involved in civil rights. And she was offended uh, in the, uh, after World War II years when blacks got housing. And then when they were trying to move in, whites would prevent them, would stone them, would break up their furniture and stuff. And she witnessed some of this in Chicago and uh, that got her heavily involved in civil rights. She was very much a rule breaker in uh, that way. And then subsequently, she was a very much a rule breaker in the sense of um, 
being anti-Vietnam well before everyone else in the country uh, found out about all the uh, mistakes, the lies, and all the other things. I mean, I'm talking about the early 60s. Um, uh, I would also say that she has a... Um, uh, a, a, a sort of uh, impish personality, maybe I can put it that way. Um, she met my father. She was a, a radiology technician. In, in the current era, she definitely would have been a doctor. But in that era, uh, A, her family didn't have any money, and, and B, there weren't that many women going to medical school. So she became a radiology technician, taking x-rays. My dad was a uh, foreign uh, um, resident at a hospital. And he had brought a kid down. Uh, they were looking for intersusception in the kid. And he uh, asked her to take some x-rays. And in those days, you know, 100, 120 hours a week uh, work was kind of the norm. And he laid down on a gurney in the emergency room while she was taking the x-ray, fell asleep. She took the uh, um, wheel release on the uh, cart um, and released it, and he, his gurney and cart slid out the emergency room door into the very cold night <laughs> air, um, and he woke up. So uh, that just gives you a sense for where that comes from on my maternal side. And my father was similarly, is similar, or, well, I mean, he, he's no longer alive, but when, when he was, he would constantly be breaking rules, constantly being uh, doing things for patients that uh, were against the rules. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I very vividly remember uh, he was one of the first uh, physicians, I think it was like 1963 or 64, in Chicago campaigning uh, to get rid of lead paint um, because of the terrible uh, problem of uh, lead poisoning among children. And he was uh, incredibly outspoken about that. And I, I, there's a famous case of, of the TV uh, truck coming to the house to interview him about his campaign. And then in 1965, right after the election, when Medicare was being debated and legislation was moving and the AMA opposed it, he quit the AMA. Now, People today listening is like, what's the big deal? In the 60s, as you well know, Robbie, um, it was incredible. I mean, you had to be part of the local medical community to get referrals. To uh, You had to be in good standing. And being part of the local medical association and the AMA was an essential element of being uh, in the group uh, who got you know, prestige and referrals and, and considered a good doctor. And my dad was like, this is unethical what they're doing. Everyone should have health insurance. And uh, he opposed them. And, and as I said, he quit. You know, So this uh, streak of the rules are, are mere suggestions. And when the rules are wrong, um, you take a stand uh, was very much uh, part of my family heritage. And my mother, not infrequently, would have to be in school because um, her sons were opposing rules and speaking out when they, you know, everyone else was silent. I love the stories. In addition to having a PhD in political philosophy, you're an oncologist trained in the treatment of cancer. You were the chief of the Department of Bioethics at the NIH, and now you serve as the chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy 
at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, let me correct you. I, I resigned the chairmanship of the department at UPenn. Um, so. Okay. Well, <laughs> maybe your answer will be even more interesting. How do you see these careers connecting and where do they conflict? Oh, boy, this is a long answer. I, um, I, uh, I would re report myself as a reluctant physician in the following sense. Um, when I was in college, uh, well, uh, well, yes, when I was in college, I was a chemistry and philosophy major, and my father uh, really wanted me to be a doctor. And I, I, I like to say that being a doctor was kind of overdetermined. Um, I'm the son of an immigrant. I'm an immigrant myself because I was born overseas. Um, I'm the eldest boy in the family, and I happen to be very good at science and uh, a very good student. And so being a doctor was what my dad wanted, and there was a ton of family pressure on me to do it. After college, I went to England for two years to see if I could or wanted to do basic biomedical research. I, I actually did some immunology research, which ironically, 50, 40 years later, turns out to be relevant to COVID and the activation of the complement pathway. But I decided I did, really didn't like being in the lab and doing the actual work. It just it wasn't satisfying intellectually to me. Came back to med school because I didn't have another plan. And I really was not very fond of uh, medical school, uh, mainly because I didn't like the hierarchy of medicine, um, that everyone deferred uh, to whoever was, you know, the, the most senior person around, as opposed to let's have a discussion about this. And um, I also did not like all the memorization of medicine it, uh, and what really appeared to me during medical school to be a lot of irrelevancy that I couldn't imagine would be really related to treating patients and making advances like relearning the Krebs cycle, like the Starling law and things like that. Um, so between my first and second year of medical school, when a lot of my peers were you know, in labs and um, I went off to try to be a journalist <laughs> and see what being a journalist was like in Washington, DC, um, I decided uh, there were a lot of people who were better writers than I was. And more importantly, I did not want to just look and report on what was being done. I wanted to actually actively partake in shaping policy. But it did give me a taste for policy. When I returned to medical school, uh, I was fortunate enough. Uh, we had an afternoon off a week. And most people, again, worked in labs to see about where they would, would spend some time. Uh, there's an active encouragement of uh, students to, to get PhDs. Instead, I ended up teaching and being a teaching assistant at Harvard in, in the um, what's called social studies, which is basically great books in political and social philosophy since Thucydides. And I realized, A, this was very satisfying, and B, I was pretty good at it. So I stopped medical school and did a PhD in political science. And I also then realized something about myself, but also in contrast, my, my father really loves people. It's what drove him is interacting with people. Um, we would go into a restaurant, we would sit down and literally within five minutes, he was talking to the people at the next table. Often that led to, you know, being invited to their house or being invited to something. That's not me. Solving each individual's personal that's just not what drives me on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And I learned that, you know, what really drives me is thinking about problems where, okay, what's the big solution, the policy solution here that where we can solve this problem that lots of people are happening for thousands or, you know, in some cases, millions of people. And that was much more motivating to me. And that's where policy, my sort of policy bent political science came in. And uh, I also realized through medical school that, you know, there were a lot of bioethical issues coming up, uh, but not a lot of people who were really trained. A lot of the people who were commenting were not trained to comment on them and were not giving very uh, deep, thoughtful answers. And that if I could bring to bear my training in philosophy and then, you know, in political science to bear, I could make a, a much bigger contribution there. And so that's how I ended up uh, more or less bringing together all these things. And then I, I went into oncology uh, mainly because oncology brings to bear all these ethical and policy issues, right? Every case has a, bit, a big question about informed consent. Every patient, there's something about end-of-life care. And every patient, increasingly, there's issues about um, cost and financial toxicity and things related to, to how we're going to pay for all this uh, complex stuff as well as social priorities about prevention of cancer versus treatment of cancer. So um, I, th I thought cancer had everything uh, going for it in terms of uh, my interests. It's interesting, Zeke. I too was a philosophy major in college. I wanted to be at, at a university professor. And when my mentor failed to get tenure because of his political views, he went on to become the chairman at Reed. So he was quite a skilled academician. But when, I, when he didn't get the tenure, I decided to become a doctor because I was certain in medicine there were no politics. <laughs> so we went in the, I was 20 years old, what did I know? We went in the right, right, right. opposite direction. So now, okay, that, let's now dive into the medical aspect. So you worked in the Obama administration and your ideas on how to transform American healthcare broke the rules of medicine at the time. What were your contributions and how well have they played out in your, in your mind 15 years later? Well, I would say um, there were a number of areas where I, I think I had some contributions, but um, maybe most distinctively, I was an internal advocate for payment reform that we should, we really needed to focus on how to pay doctors differently so that we could get them to behave differently and focus on improving quality, lowering costs, getting rid of uh, uh, unnecessary and inefficient care. And I pushed things like bundled payments, um, uh, pushed things like CMMI that dedicated to, to lowering costs in the system, uh, refining the ACO, uh, trying to get the right uh, uh, incentive, the right structure for PCORI, the Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute. Um, in addition, I also uh, was a big advocate internally of uh, malpractice reform which didn't go anywhere, it's a complicated story, but um, uh, I think, and the main reason I wanted malpractice reform is not that I think it would lower costs or there were frivolous lawsuits. Um, I just think, thought and still think that it's a excuse doctors invoke to not focus on the other stuff that we're supposed to be doing. Um, so, you know, uh, that's not the only thing I did as part of the Affordable, uh, Affordable Care Act, but that is uh, one of the things. Obviously, expanding coverage, debating and trying to sort out 
the subsidies for the exchanges, how much we could afford, how much cost control we could get. Um, all of those things were uh, part of what I did. I probably, uh, there are a lot of things I wish I had pushed harder on um, and a lot of things I wish I had thought more deeply about. Um, I, and I would say top of that list of things that I wish I had thought more deeply about and emphasize more is more simplicity in our system. One of the things I think that the Affordable Care Act unfortunately did is to actually make the system much more complicated. And um, I think that uh, uh, turned out to be a, a uh, is a problem. And I think it's one of the major problems of the American healthcare system. It's so damn complicated to use. It's really, really hard uh, for people who aren't focused on health. And even if you are focused, we had to invent a whole new category of employment called navigators because it's become so mind-numbingly complex. If we had focused on simplicity, it might have helped in many, many different ways. We have a rule that tells physicians to save a life at any cost, but we now have the ability to prolong life to the point that treatment becomes torture. How does that rule need to evolve? Well, I, I, first of all, I think what's fascinating is if you talk to patients, many of them do not have that view of save me at any cost. There are some. And I think if you look at most polling over time, there's probably around 20% of people fall into that category. Mostly people will say, I want quality over quantity, but they don't really know what quality they're really looking at and, and uh, what, where that tipping point would be. So that, that sort of general advice is, is often not helpful and therefore not heated. I do think that medicine has moved on since the time that you and I trained um, in the sense that, you know, when, when um, we were training, you know, almost every patient who died in the hospital got resuscitated. DNR orders were still controversial. Withdrawing treatment was still controversial. We didn't talk to patients about it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, a, the majority of patients were dying in the hospital. I, I spent a lot of time in the end-of-life care field uh, trying to change our, first of all, trying to understand what really motivated patients and then trying to change our norms about it. And, and I think in all three of those areas, the norms have changed. Uh, first, we've realized that you can talk to patients about end-of-life care. They're not, uh, most of them are, uh, want to talk about it. We just haven't figured out how to overcome that nervousness that we have as doctors, nervousness that patients have in bringing up the subject. Um, and this has actually led to some of my thinking about how to change that whole issue. The second thing is, you know, almost no patients any longer in the hospital get resuscitated. It's very, DNR orders are much more the norm. 90 plus percent of patients have DNR orders. And if they die in the hospital, uh, they don't get resuscitated. That's a huge change. And I think a huge change uh, in the perception of the medical community. And the third thing is the majority of patients don't die in the hospital anymore. And we've shifted uh, more to the outpatient setting, home, nursing home when patients are living in the nursing home, uh, um, where the site of death. 
And, and I think that does suggest that this notion of do everything, no matter what, has evolved. Um, and I think that's super important. And yet I just read about a patient with COVID who was on a respirator for three years. And yes. I know a lot of, I, I do head and neck cancer surgery, and I know patients who have their tongue removed and a variety of other procedures done so they never will speak again, eat again, uh, be able to effectively communicate, uh, be able to maintain their saliva in their mouth. And yet they move ahead and we don't really explain to them what their life is going to be like until it's so late that there's little that can be done. So I don't know how much progress we've actually made. Do you have a view on where we are? Yeah, I do think we've made progress. I think it's, uh, is there way more that we need to do? Absolutely. You know, you're talking to a guy who's done some comparative research. You know, we have more patients uh, admitted to the ICU at the end of life, certainly with cancer uh, than other countries. Uh, we have a very high proportion who get chemotherapy, not the highest. I think Belgium's the highest in, in, in the last 30 or 60 days of life. Um, so we have plenty more to do. Nonetheless, I do think we have had a important shift. What I would say is I think in, and I think you're getting, Robbie, to, to a major point, which is we often um, are hesitant about raising the topic of end-of-life care or do you really want this treatment? Um, and I think it's natural, right? Who wants to go into those deep conversations? All of us, even inside our own family, have had difficulty raising very, very emotionally charged issues. And I don't know that there are many more emotionally charged issues than you know how you want to live and die. So I think that's a kind of natural thing. So one of the things I have been thinking a lot about is how do we get over that hump, as it were? How do we initiate those conversations? How do we uh, um, uh, try to elicit patients' views um, without you know, putting a lot of pressure on doctors who are sort of hesitant, don't feel like they have the time to do it. And I think there's a lot of ways we can try to do that. It will help if we have better predictive models and things like that. We have a rule that says it is wrong to pay people to donate organs such as a kidney, and simultaneously, there are tens of thousands of people who die unnecessarily in the United States each year waiting for a transplant. Should we keep this rule? Or does it need to evolve in light of the growing transplant waiting list? Let me say, uh, I know that there's a lot of people who advocate that we should pay. I'm not sure the evidence supports that. We do know from certainly blood donation, it hasn't necessarily led to more blood donation. It has somewhat undermined the notion of uh, volunteering and, and giving. It hasn't necessarily improved the quality of the blood supply. Um, I am not against experiments and seeing how paying influences um, the donation. Um, I am skeptical that the free marketeers who are very, very uh, supportive of this, that it will actually increase the net number of organs. I think there are better ways of going about this than payment. For example, um, we are harvesting your organs as a default unless you tell us not to. We know. And by the way, we're not going to ask your family for permission because your view on this 
is much more important than your family's view. It's your body, not your family's body. Um, and I think trying that first uh, would be a very important approach, in my humble opinion. And um, uh, I would like to do that before, uh, before paying people uh, to donate living or organ donors. As you well know, Robbie, the donor, in the case of kidneys, uh, uh, goes through a much more difficult time and longer recuperation than the recipient of the donation of a kidney, um, which is maybe contrary to most people's expectation. And I think that's um, a non-trivial aspect as well. I do think uh, harvesting more from cadavers is probably what we're really going to have to do. And in that context, flipping the uh, default, as they say in behavioral economics, to not that we're going to ask at the moment of your death or when you get a driver's license, but we're going to, the, the, the culture is going to assume you're donating unless you say, no, we give you multiple opportunities to opt out, like at the driver's license and at other places. Some people, however, might point out that if you're going to go through all of that discomfort, you should be compensated as a consequence and that by being able to get people to donate earlier, earlier in life, uh, when they're relatively uh, healthy in a pre-planned way, the outcomes for patients could be better. So there might be an ethical balance that says that if we put all the pieces together, the scale at least potentially tips. You're absolutely right. We'd have to do some surveys in that direction. This is a to to you know, totally utilitarian question. Does paying actually increase the supply without other negative consequences? That's the question. We, you know, you and I can sit here and pontificate about it, or mostly the people at the University of Chicago Economics Department who push this hard can pontificate about it. But it's really an empirical question. We won't know until we test it. And um, I think I I'm, I'm, you know, I I'm happy to test it if we rigorously study it and we don't just, again, be ideological about it. Before we do that, I would suggest we try one or two other things that are, uh, you might say, less controversial and um, uh, might also increase the supply. Let me pose another ethical question, which is early in this last pandemic, as vaccines were being developed, we might have been able to bring them to the marketplace two, three months earlier have we been willing to administer them to individuals and then challenge them with the virus? This is an approach that was used in other countries. It was not used in the United States. Uh, what are your views as a bioethicist on this question? Well, that's another question where I think it's, it's pretty clearly a utilitarian question, which is, um, is this actually gonna get us to the answers we need faster how well it protects people, um, how long that protection is, what the optimal sequence is. I am not 100% sure, having looked at this multiple times, that in fact, uh, the challenge studies, you know, given the difficulty of raising the virus, um, uh, getting the exact right dose to expose people to, it's not, it's not trivial. Um, and uh, that that would have helped um, and speed things along. If it wouldn't have helped speed things along, you shouldn't have done it. You should have just done a randomized controlled trial. And early on, frankly, Robbie, getting 
tens or hundreds of thousands of people to take the vaccine and study them was easy. That wasn't a problem. It was our inability or our bad clinical research infrastructure in the United States that did not allow us to do these tests uh, easy and promptly. And I think that's a much bigger issue, frankly, than uh, the ethical issue of uh, challenge studies. What else went wrong during the COVID period? Uh, just about everything, <laughs> the CDC and testing. But I, I, th I think, you know, if I had to point out uh, the biggest problem is we did not use this opportunity to make structural institutional changes that would last long after the end of COVID. Let me give you just uh, uh, three of them. I've already mentioned the clinical research. You know, if you look at the clinical research that the United States produced, we did a horrible job of generating clinical research. Besides the, uh, the randomized controlled trial of Moderna vaccine, um, we were not at the forefront of generating clinical research data, um, large-scale randomized controlled trials that answered major questions. The British were way ahead of us, answered more questions faster than we did. We do not have a very good clinical research in infrastructure for rapidly answering pragmatic questions. Um, and we have long asked narrow questions with lots of inclusion and exclusion criteria that make it hard to enroll people. Um, we still don't today, as a consequence, know the optimal uh, timing of doses, when the first one and the second one should happen, what the, about mixing and matching them. Um, we don't really know the durability uh, uh, of the vaccines, um, uh, not just in terms of antibody response, but also in terms of B cell and T cell response. We did not set up an infrastructure so that you know every week we could enroll people uh, and test out different antivirals or immune modulators to see if they worked well. And we missed that opportunity. We are, we did not revise our clinical research infrastructure. You know, and the best example of the crap we produced was convalescent plasma, where we had scores, if not hundreds, of trials at every institution doing something slightly different. So it wasn't a large randomized trial across the country with standards so we could pool all the data. We had myriad individual trials that were slightly different, so you couldn't actually pool the data. Um, and uh, it was terrible. And the NIH didn't revise how it approaches institutions to participate. Second, um, we could have made major changes in indoor air quality, which we know um, is extremely relevant, not just to COVID, but to flu, to other respiratory illnesses, as well as asthma. Um, so upgrading all HVAC systems, putting in MERV filter or HEPA filters where you can't upgrade them, uh, changing the rules, creating standards and grading systems for uh, commercial and public buildings. We could have done that. We should have done that. We didn't do it. And we had money for it, especially in the education sphere, but also the public building sphere. And I think that's, again, a hugely important missed opportunity. And third, we know that our data was terrible. Nothing reliable uh, and timely, near real time, produced in the United States on uh, COVID. We were relying on Britain and Israel, uh, sometimes Denmark, South Africa, 
Um, that's, you know, uh, as my grandmother would say, that's a Shanda. That is a terrible uh, place for us to be. Uh, we did have not fixed that. Yes, we have put an analytics branch at CDC, but, you know, the analysis is only good as the data. We haven't compelled states to uh, report data, to report it electronically, report it in real time, uh, compelled health systems to do the same. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a bad mistake. Another missed opportunity, in my humble opinion. And we didn't fix the infrastructure and institutionalized reform there. Three big areas where this terrible uh, COVID pandemic came and went, and we didn't fix the systems around it. And I can go on and on and on and on. Wastewater testing is another area. So let's go back to another ethical question. In my book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, I wrote about physician-assisted suicide. This is one of the most controversial areas of medicine. What are your thoughts on whether the traditional rules and norms need to be changed? Well, I've written about this. I, I, I've studied this for the last 25 years. I was, uh, if not the very first American researcher, empirical researcher and commentator on this area. Uh, one of the uh, first small group of people um, I did a lot of surveys and interviews of uh, patients who were terminally ill and cancer patients and oncologists about this. And my view is the same. First of all, we need to, you know, I would bet almost everyone listening to this podcast thinks, well, the kinds of patients who really want euthanasia and assisted suicide, they're patients in excruciating pain. And um, that's who want the wrong. That is not the patient's who want end of, uh, suicide or euthanasia at the end of life. Um, that is just simply empirically false. Um, and that image uh, was very important to lots of legal cases. Um, and I think, again, we, we have the wrong image in our head. It turns out that the people who are interested in assisted suicide and euthanasia are interested because of psychological distress, depression, hopelessness, uh, fears about loss of autonomy and other things. Um, uh, our usual way of treating psychological distress is not, here's a few pills um, for suicide. Um, we usually say, you know, you need some help psychologically and we're gonna provide that help to you. I have been against legalizing assisted suicide in euthanasia for a very long time, be precisely because of that. I do not think it's the answer to a question that is very relevant. Um, uh, first of all, it's not the answer to the question, how do we improve our end-of-life care, for two overwhelming reasons. The first is, not many people will use this even when legalized. Even in Oregon, where it's been legalized for over 20 years, or permitted for over 20 years, uh, less than 1% of people who die use it. Um, so just not a uh, way of addressing a problem. You still have 99% of people who aren't interested in assisted suicide or euthanasia who are still dying and you need to improve their end-of-life care experience. So the idea that we'll solve the end-of-life care problem by um, legalizing assisted suicide and euthanasia, that's another pipe dream uh, that has been foisted on the American public by uh, uh, advocates. Second, as I've mentioned, it's not addressing the problem uh, that really drives people, which is psychological distress uh, and control. Uh, third, um, 
it really is a case uh, that we do have a slippery slope, that the more comfortable people are, the more we use this, even in cases where it, it may not be legal or it's pushing the limits. We've seen this in the Netherlands and Belgium where you know it's, it's uh, uh, suffering, unremitting suffering. Well, it's now expanded to psychological suffering becomes a legitimate reason. It's adults and now it's become, well, we can do adolescents and children um, uh, into the single digits. So you really do, and by the way, the numbers that use it increase. It really is the case that there is a slippery slope and the idea that it, there isn't is people not really uh, taking seriously the, the data. Um, and finally, people think this is fast, painless and flawless way of dying. And again, the data don't show that. There are complications. Um, there are problems. Uh, the uh, Oregon data tries to hide those problems, and they don't separate them out. Uh, but uh, the fact is that when you look at it, and when the Dutch have looked at it, that there are some serious problems. One last question. You wrote many years ago about how you personally would see your medical care differently once you reach the age, I think it was of 70. No, 75. 75. Don't how, take five years. How have your views on that subject changed since that time? They really haven't changed. You know, uh, people, uh, human beings are on a spectrum uh, or a bell-shaped curve or some kind of curve uh, where some people are, you know, cognitively intact, are physically intact, um, well after 75. Most of us are not outliers like that. Most of us are solidly <laughs> in the middle. And what you see is in the middle, the rate of Alzheimer's goes up at 75. It's like this um, small case of people with early Alzheimer's, and then it shoots up after 75 and uh, really high. So that by 80, 85, you have you know roughly between depending on the study, a third and half the population has dementia. Um, uh, physical ailments, you know, everyone's like, you know, gonna continue physically fine and then fall off a cliff. Turns out that's not the way life has been going for most people. Uh, the uh, disability, the uh, um, uh, inability to do activities of daily life has actually somewhat increased recently. Um, uh, so, uh, and I, I don't, the, the other thing is, um, uh, for many of us, even if we're mentally clear, we become a little mentally ossified, by which I mean the intellectual plasticity of people, the ability to learn new things, the ability to think new thoughts, rather than repeat what we've said over and over again in the past, um, I think, uh, well, not I think, we know goes down, right? I mean, in the brain, it's a, a um, uh, Darwinian selection for neural, conne neural connections. The areas you use over and over again get stronger. The areas you don't use that much atrophy, which is why it's hard for most people to learn new languages older in life or how to play an instrument older in life. Um, and as a consequence, you know, you're, you're basically doing a lot of the same old stuff. And if you look at people, there are only a few people and they are outliers and somehow they must have some mechanism of keeping mental plasticity going. There's, their, their genetics are different than most of us. They can do new things. You know, I am 
uh, in addition to many things, I, I, I am a reader of history. And a few semesters ago, I taught a course on Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin one, was one of these outliers. Um, uh, it's not that he was physically fit late into life. He, he, he got a little too uh, uh, well off and, and a little too much into the good food and not exercising. Young, he was incredibly physically fit. He used to be a fantastic champion swimmer, very strong. Um, none of us think about him as a young man, but he he was incredibly fit. Um, and he was an outlier. Uh, he came back to the United States after being the ambassador to France during the war at eight, almost 80 years old. Um, and he was still writing, still went to the Continental Congress at the age of 82, not the Continental, the Constitutional Convention at the age of 82, um, wrote some brilliant things, including parts of his autobiography after 80 years old. He was a true outlier. Um, most of us aren't going to be like that. And um, you can see uh, many of your peers, we slow down at uh, 70. We People retire. They end up being uh, playing, you know, uh, less creative. Um, you know, they're not producing and contributing in the same way. And, you know, I don't, that's not the way I see my life. I don't want my children or other people to remember me in a particular way. I want to go out being very active, uh, totally fit, uh, intellectually engaged, physically fit. Uh, so that's 75. <laughs> and again, it's just playing the numbers. And, and by the way, by the way, people have often said to me, you know, oh, my aunt, she's 90 and completely mentally intact. When you look, for example, and, and again, we focus on things like Nobel Prize winners and uh, authors because we have data on those people. It's a very, it's, I don't think there's anybody who's done their research that led to the Nobel Prize after 75 and maybe even after 70. Mostly those contributions are between the late 30s and early 40s. Um, there are a few people slightly older. Um, people win it after 75, but that's, you know, their contribution was decades before that. Um, similarly on novels or poetry, it's a very rare person. And, and, you know, you can probably count on two hands, maybe three hands, the number of people who after 75 have made major contributions. Vivaldi's one, Sophocles is another, Ben Franklin is another, um, but they're pretty rare, actually. <laughs> um, and, and you say that your grandmother was completely intact, and maybe it's true, I have no way of knowing, but I can tell you, you know, there's a, there's a good reason to be skeptical. <laughs> All right, to piggyback off of kind of what Robbie just asked you, uh, and this is, I'm going to ask this in a completely nonpartisan way. When we look at some of the age of our elected officials, many of whom are much older than 75 and some of them, even their age 80s, such as Dianne Feinstein, Nancy Pelosi, or even here in Iowa, we have Chuck Grassley. And if you look at the presidential side, I, I believe Biden is 79 and Trump is 76. And assuming they're the nominees for the 24 election or 2024 election, they would both be in their mid eighties by the time that that presidential term ends. Uh, the American president is, you know, the most powerful person in the world where they need to make snap decisions or in charge of the nuclear weapons and needing to be in peak mental condition is probably the most important qualification of the job. Do you think there should be a maximum age for elected officials or how should that be handled? 
No. <laughs> and I don't think because, precisely because I've given you the Ben Franklin example, which is there are people who are outliers. There are people who are uh, mentally fit, uh, physically fit and can you know be outliers. And I think a, uh, a severe age cutoff um, is wrong if, for precisely that reason. Um, on the other hand, I have up close watched some politicians and not so, interestingly, not all the politicians you've actually mentioned who clearly were uh, not uh, mentally fit and were in office, including the Senate, um, and were uh, showed signs of uh, various kinds of dementia. Now, I didn't, uh, as I say, showed signs of, I didn't examine them and didn't have the ability to uh, properly assess them. So I'm not going to say they were demented, but um, showed signs that were suggestive. Uh, we know that Ronald Reagan uh, was uh, one of those characters uh, uh, where many people had suspicions that there was some kind of dementia lurking there. You couldn't make that diagnosis because people weren't, uh, weren't able to examine him. We don't have his medical records from the Mayo Clinic open and available to the public to see what his doctors actually thought. Um, so I don't think a hard and fast rule there is uh, appropriate, um, but I do think that there are cases where um, our sus suspicions ought to be high, um, and we should uh, uh, make sure that we're electing people who are uh, mentally fit uh, for the offices that they're running for. How would we, just a quick follow-up on that, how would we say after they're in office, if there is a cognitive decline after that happens, after they've already been elected, then how would- Well, they... you know, fortunately for the presidency, we have a method. Isn't it the 25th Amendment? Um, so we have a method uh, for the presidency. Ironically, for Senate and Congress, uh, we don't have a method. Thank you, Zeke, for being on Fixing Healthcare today. There are so many more areas where the rules of medicine intersect with ethics and clinical practice. I look forward to inviting you back in the future. Okay. What do you think about what Dr. Emanuel said, Robbie? Jeremy, Zeke is a remarkable thinker, ethicist, and policy expert. I thought his view of taking a utilitarian perspective to some of these complex medical issues like transplantation and vaccine challenges was provocative. His opinions definitely go against the rigid norms of medicine today. I predict that as medical practice continues to evolve, that these types of ethical considerations will grow. We're already seeing it relative to drugs that cost upwards of $2 million and have minimal clinical impact. And the realm of genetics with the ability to alter the human genome, that's just beginning. I also found his answer to the question about the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, insightful. The legislation passed under President Obama has done a lot of good with expansion of healthcare coverage to millions of Americans who previously were uninsured. But at the same time, the health of our nation, that has failed to improve over the past 10 years since the ACA was implemented. People on both sides of the political spectrum have debated whether the approaches instituted through the ACA have been positive or problematic. Maybe, as Zeke implies, 
The issue isn't the content, but instead the complexity of what it takes to get coverage and care in the United States now. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.